0: Trigger warning, this podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode
1: you know so many of these individuals are cheaters and they're dishonest in so many different ways my ex-husband his mistress was finances and taking out unbelievable loans and um we lived this extravagant lifestyle that made me incredibly uncomfortable because that wasn't what I was accustomed to, but I was constantly dismissed by don't question things. You know, you grew up, he would tell me you're white trash. You grew up white trash. You grew up in a trailer. Don't, you have no authority to question me. And so I was shut out from all of the finances until our world crumbled. Hi,
2: survivors. I'm Tara Newell.
0: And I'm Collier Landry, and this is The Survivor Squad Podcast.
2: Yay, another episode.
0: Another episode. And a first of many conventions are in the history books, right, Tara?
2: Yes, they're in the history books, Collier.
0: (laughs) True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival in Austin. It was fantastic.
2: So much fun. I just had a blast meeting everyone, meeting so many different creators. And then I met so many people that met diva deb before and had them on their podcast so i was ecstatic to see that because it just is funny when my mom's on something and i never met that person before because usually i'm the first one on that because i'm just in the world i'm in it it's collier
0: you're in it Uh diva deb and we sold diva deb's books
2: yes i sold three of them
0: we sold some t-shirts we gave out some stickers we had amazing stickers and banners created by yours truly
2: oh yeah And Marisol was on the banner too.
0: And Marisol Mm -hmm. is on the banner. I was quite proud of myself.
2: I was proud of you too. And then we had little stickers of Marisol and then our Survivor Squad stickers too. And then you could scan those and just like order the t-shirt right from the app, which is really cool, which we have a lot of cool t-shirts right now, I think.
0: Yes, we do. And we have a lot of cool things in the store. For a first time of having like a booth at a convention, which I've not for any of these types of conventions I've ever had. I I don't think I've ever had a booth at a convention. Have you?
2: I don't think so. No. No, I haven't. This is crazy. I haven't. No.
0: Yeah, I mean, oh, you know what? I guess I have, but I've had like an interview spot where we had a backdrop and we were interviewing people and it was a live video thing. This would be the first time where I actually was selling merchandise and giving out stickers.
2: (laughs) Yes. So if you guys are coming to Crime.com, b-shirts you visit us there we'll have books being signed we'll have t-shirts and then if you guys don't want to travel with the t-shirts you guys can order right from the sticker
0: right from the sticker right from the booth with qr codes we figured out we and we're gonna be doing live um live podcasting at the actual crime con show so that will be really cool check it out we'll be there september 22nd to the 24th and we got to meet so many creators and so many guests that we had on our program we got to meet Obviously, last week's guest, John Palmer, and the episode about his wife, Katie Palmer, which was really, you know, we had a big hug and a big, you know, teary-eyed moment, which was, which was great. Um, he was there sharing his story. We got to meet Julie Murray, Maura Murray's sister. Obviously, Laney, who, who ran the festival. Je- uh, Justin from Generation Y was there. And we'll see him at CrimeCon, which will be great. And who else were the, the highlights? You got to play with a stun gun thing, right? A zapper?
2: Oh, it was a stun gun, not a... What's it McCall it?
0: A, a zapper, a taser.
2: St- a you taser. said a taser earlier.
0: I said a taser.
2: Yeah, it's a stun gun. Yes, a stun gun.
0: Got it. Well, that's what it is. I wanna, I wanna make, make note that I was not shot by the stun gun. So, but I, I whacked myself in the face with the ball on the first day in the gym. Oh
2: my gosh, the bouncy
0: ball. I thought I broke my nose and my teeth, which was that was super fun. It was a great way. Welcome to Austin. Ever being up for twenty four hours straight, almost thirty six hours. Smash myself at the gym. That was funny. Though.
2: Well, and then you came back and you act like someone punched you in the face. And I was like, wait, you got in a fight with someone? What? Oh my gosh.
0: I only get in fights with inanimate objects that somehow are able to strike me back. It was funny. Well, this week we have our guest, Tina Swithin.
2: Yes. Tina Swithin is one mom's battle on instagram and tiktok and she is fighting for justice for her daughters because she married a narcissist not knowing she married a narcissist and unfortunately he wanted to take her kids from her and i think unfortunately she's still ongoing with this battle during the time of the interview he left her alone but i think he came back to stir some stuff up so please send her support also, she has amazing programs, so I think a lot of people are going to resonate with this episode, especially if they're in the legal battle system with a narcissist.
0: Yes, she and she was interviewed by our good friend, Dr. Romney and several others who have podcasts. But what do you say we get into Tina's story?
2: Yes, let's get into it. Welcome, Tina. I'm really excited to get chatting today about narcissist abuse, but we were chatting beforehand and we think it's a little bit more than narcissist. So I'm excited to get to know your story. Can you start by telling us why you are here today on Survivor Squad?
1: I have a lot of trauma. I feel like I'm (laughs) in good company with that. And uh, I, you know, I'm somebody who I think I've always been more on the optimistic side. I wear rose colored glasses. I like to see the best in people. And because of that, I think I was very much a target for a very unhealthy individual and um, who really came in and swept me off my feet. I was 26 years old. I had actually taken a year, over a year off prior to that to work on myself and put myself in counseling because I have a lot of childhood trauma. And so I really wanted to go into this next chapter in a good place and being aware of red flags and all of the things we're supposed to look out for. I will say back then, there wasn't as much information out there. As there is now on these issues, and so I was very much swept off my feet by a modern-day prince charming, and it felt too good to be true, very fairy tale. And um, coming from a broken home, I really wanted, you know, the intact family, the um, healthy, normal lifestyle, and what was presented to me was a family that was very um, ingrained in our community, public servants. Um, they were both um, in academics. They, One of them started a, a high school, happened to be a Catholic high school, and so just this what appeared to be a well-rounded family and they had been the parent his parents had been married for 30 years had four boys and it was everything i had wanted and so i felt honored to be included in this family and so looking back i will say i overlooked some things that were yellow flags orange flags red flags because I crave stability so badly, and I saw myself as the flawed one in the equation. And so I was, I truly, when I look back, I felt honored to be in their presence and to be accepted by them, which um, wasn't the best uh, foundation to start off on. And it was. About a year and a half into our relationship, we went away on vacation and he proposed and he said, let's not tell anyone, let's get married. So it was this very much whirlwind thing. And now looking back, it was about control. It was about um, him being in charge. I saw it as romantic and as our relationship progressed and our marriage progressed, you know the red flags start waving, and you, they're they're pretty undeniable. Um, went on to have two beautiful little girls, and towards the end of our marriage, it was about seven and a half years in. I could no longer deny <laughs> the issues. Um, Specifically, the fact that I found out he had put us 1.6 million dollars in debt behind my back. So <laughs> that is a number to this day that I can't grasp. Um, it's um, I blew. I grew up in a very blue-collar working-class family. My dad raised me. He was a single dad, a machinist in a in a you know shop, and so the lifestyle that i had been thrown into was very much out of my element and um, i was constantly made to feel inferior so anytime i questioned can we afford this can we buy car number 5 and why do two people need car number 5 in the driveway <laughs> five cars in the <laughs> five cars in the driveway
2: what and I'm at the point of your story where he literally went and bought two cars in one day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and that was pretty early on. Um, you know, in the beginning of our courtship, it was this, oh, this over-the-top romantic, you know, we're soulmates, um, move away with me, give up everything. I gave up. I had worked really hard to um, be independent. And I owned my own business and here I am 25, 26 years old. And, um, you know, was so proud of everything I had accomplished. And then he secured this really good job in the Bay area and said, move away with me. Let's start a life together. It was only six weeks in and, um, I am spontaneous by nature. I saw you on a um, live or something you did wearing a Grateful Dead shirt. I'm like, I used to go to Grateful Dead concerts. I was, <laughs> I am so spontaneous and yeah, I was I am a former Deadhead and um, when Jerry died, I was a ticket holder. I actually had tickets <laughs> to a touch show. So. This was kind of like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool and spontaneous and romantic. And let's go start a life together. And um, yeah.
2: I also just have to say that we are very similar in the fact that you also did uh, pet sitting and had like a pet sitting business. I do that on the side right now, but I worked out a dog kennel. I was a
1: dog groomer when I moved to the Bay Area with him and you know it was everything that i did kind of say well that's odd or that doesn't feel right it was you know i I, for example i remember he wanted me to get rid of all of my furniture and it was like no we're gonna buy all new furniture and this is exciting it'll be ours together and i'm thinking but i worked so hard to buy those things and i'm so proud of what i've accomplished But then what that ended up being was isolation, moving me four hours away from my home. And now I have, I don't even have my own spoon or fork. You know, everything that I had was sold under this guise of this is going to be romantic to start fresh and buy everything together. But what it did was when I did start, you know, seeing these red flags that were undeniable, I didn't know how to get away because I he was in control of all the money he had wanted me to quit my business to go back to college because that was so important to him and his family so I was completely dependent on this person and had to trust that he you know we hear about projection where you know the narcissist or the sociopath projects onto us but it actually works both ways and that's why we get ourselves into a lot of trouble because I was projecting onto him who I am as a person and he was not deserving of that so benefit of the doubt um, I've heard that described as some of the most dangerous words in our language and it's so true
0: so interesting listening to your story because i was in a relationship with a narcissist right around the time that my film came out and so they had jumped on all those like feel good moments and and it's just you're literally ticking off all these things and i'm like oh yeah i remember when we moved in together i had to get rid of my furniture i had to get rid of this i have like i was just thinking about something earlier today and i was like oh i wish i had oh i don't have that anymore because she made me get rid of that you know and then and i i co-mingled our businesses and then and then any money that I had, she had sucked up, and then <laughs> it just was a spiral effect. Yeah. And then, of course, when I wanted to leave, it was full destruction, and I lost—I had nothing. <laughs> you know, I was going to be like, I was sleeping on a couch in a cat-infested house, and it was just wild.
1: Right.
0: And um, right. You know, I, I just had nothing, and then they—they just—they suck your soul. But, anyways, I—I don't want to get into that, but it's just it's taking me back to so many things just the isolation that they know
1: there's so many yeah so many similarities and um you know threads that run through all of these that it's um hindsight is 2020 and so many people who have never experienced this can look at it and go but how did you not see this and you're like but it happens so slow and by the time it builds up and you get to the point where you don't have a couch to sleep on because you've given it all up. You know, it's kind of, you're in that place and it's, it's isolating. And I had to get to the place where I'm glad that people don't get it because I wouldn't wish this type of journey on anyone.
0: From the little that I had read about you, you obviously went through the family court system. Can you tell us all about how all of this unfolded when you had your daughters and everything and, and and how all of this ended up with this money. And, and you said 280 years.
1: So that's my, actually the 280 years is my ex brother-in-law, my husband's, my ex-husband's brother. Um, But when I found out that my husband had put us $1.6 million in debt, it was because the IRS showed up at our house and our live-in nanny called me and said, there's IRS agents here. And next thing I know, I went to get gas and my debit card didn't work. They had froze everything. So that started uncovering, you know, so many of these individuals are cheaters and they're dishonest in so many different ways. My ex-husband, his mistress was finances and taking out unbelievable loans and um, we lived this extravagant lifestyle that made me incredibly uncomfortable because that wasn't what I was accustomed to but I was constantly dismissed by don't question things you know you grew up he would tell me you're white trash you grew up white trash You grew up in a trailer. Don't you have no authority to question me? And so I was shut out from all of the finances until our world crumbled. And when the IRS came in and froze everything, we lost our house. We lost, I watched cars being repossessed out of the driveway almost daily. I'm looking at my daughters, they are one and three at the time and not even knowing how I'm going to feed them if our life is is crumbling. And because we own businesses together, I didn't have a job and he had really put me in a place where I was completely dependent. And I also have a you know, a diagnosis, a health diagnosis that he would use to taunt me, nobody's going to want you back then, we thought it was multiple sclerosis, it's actually something worse, but he would hold that over my head to intimidate me into staying. And so, you know, I had so much fear of I will fail, I will end up in a homeless shelter, um, if I don't stay with this person. And um, long story short, um, we ended up in, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I remember sitting in a therapist's office and she said, This person at minimum is a narcissist, possibly a sociopath. And and here's the rose-colored glasses. I got so excited. I actually said, great, what do we do to change him? Like, how do we fix this? Because (laughs) back then there was no No. one talking about these things, this was 2008. And so I'm so naive, I'm like, if we have a label, we can fix him, I'm a fixer, what do we do? And so, you know, the therapist kind of looked at me like, oh, honey, like, You either lace up your shoes and get the hell out of Dodge or you accept that this is your life. And for me, it was looking at my little girls and thinking, if he talks to them the way he talks to me, I will crumble. I cannot, you know, every bite of food I ate was criticized, my weight, my calorie intake was monitored, everything. And I just thought, you know, I can't raise them like this. And so finally, it came to an end. It was about six months after the therapist had delivered that news. But I'll tell you, when she told me that, I was not ready to hear it. I marched out of there like, how dare she? She doesn't know him and I can fix this.
0: Mover Nation, you guys all know how I lead a really busy life, right? And I know we could all use a little more relaxation. Now, whether you're trying to chill out or just need a good night's rest, NextEvo's CBD will be your best friend. But, and this is big, not all CBD products are created equal. Shockingly, a study found that many CBD brands contain as little as 60% of what their labels promise. I've been trying out NextEvo Naturals and Movers It's the real deal. And their commitment, well, it's giving you exactly what's on the label. Remember, they've undergone four clinical trials, a feat unmatched by any other brand of CBD. Now, I personally adore their stress CBD complex gummies. When I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed, they are a total game changer. And those nights when sleep is all too elusive for me, the triple action CBD sleep does absolute wonders. Leave summer stress behind and upgrade your CBD. Go to nextevo.com forward slash mpt to get 25% off plus a free bottle of premium pure CBD, a $50 value, limit one use per customer. That's com slash mpt.
1: But it was about six months after that, that, um, I made the decision that, um, you know, well, we were in therapy together and here's the interesting part. He would only see a male PhD therapist. He wouldn't go to my therapist. Um, how narcissistic is that? So we end up in this, um, Therapist office, a male PhD, and it was about six months into that. And the therapist said, "I really think we need to do a, a psychological evaluation. I think that there is something more here that I can then I can solve here in my office." And that was the day our marriage ended. He accused me of manipulating the therapist <laughs> because yep. apparently I have that much power. Um, yep. And and walked out, um, but I'll tell you in so many ways it was the biggest relief. It was like having the band-aid just ripped off, and that started our journey. Um, I ended up in a women's shelter with my daughters, which was humbling because I had volunteered there for years, delivering turkeys at Thanksgiving and and all of that stuff. I call it my fake fancy life, you know, and <laughs> my Mercedes dropping off. Thanksgiving turkeys for the people at the women's shelter. So then to find myself there. Um, and I was afraid for my life. I truly believed that had we been in a dark alley or he could get away with it, that he would have ended my life. And so once I left the shelter, um, it was for over a year I slept with a hammer under my pillow and I carried. Um, my dad had sent me from out of state here in California. I don't think it's legal, but it was like an industrial size, riot size mace can for like police, um, (laughs) large crowd situations. And so at night I slept with a hammer and during the day I carried um, this can of mace around my house to the point that I remember my daughter was about four, four and a half. And at one point we were going to leave somewhere and she said mom you forgot your can of spray and that like hit me through the heart because I'm like oh my god you know it's um I was doing I was working so hard to shelter them from the reality of what was happening in our lives and I thought this is not normal (laughs) that I am carrying around a can of pepper spray or mace around my house um it's terrifying and I remember it would be little things like him stalking in front of my house, but he it, he was so good at impression management that you call the police and you tell them he just dropped off wedding videos on my front porch, just as I knew it was a way to let me know he was around and that he was lurking. But the police are like, oh, well, that's so nice of him, you know, to to return those. Um, And it was all of those little things where you start to doubt your own sanity because you're being gaslit by authorities and people around you. And I even remember consulting with an attorney, um, and I had to represent myself in family court because he had financially destroyed me and had to file bankruptcy. But I remember consulting with an attorney and telling this attorney, I'm afraid for my life. I I truly believe he could kill me and I want, you know, somehow to go on record or to let someone know that if something happens to me that he did it. And the attorney said, don't ever say that to anyone in family court because you're going to be labeled as crazy and hysterical and paranoid and, um... That was really disheartening because I really, truly, to this day, believe that he's capable of that.
2: Well, I think even the lighting of the tapes, that to me would be a threat. That would be like, I know your location. I know where you're at. By the way, you're tied to me forever until death. Remember, like that would be like my take on that. So that would be a threat to me.
1: Absolutely. And, and there was one situation where the judge, he had, um, I went out of town one weekend and we, for a period of time, we had done a nesting agreement so that my daughters could stay in the same beds every night. And I would leave on the weekend so he could have parenting time with the girls. And one of the weekends I left and I went down to Orange County to see my sister. I came home to my entire house being empty. He had gutted everything including the pictures off the walls, the videos that I had of my daughters since they were born. He took everything. And the court ordered him to give me back my pictures. I thought, you know, I'm going to choose my battles wisely. The court's annoyed with both of us, thinking that this is a high-conflict situation, yet I'm afraid for my life. And the court ordered him to give back my photos. And one morning, it was 6 a.m., I opened my apartment door, And I'm in an upstairs apartment and I look down and I just had this instant just panic feeling and I see him parked at the bottom of the stairs and the entire stairwell is lined with photos of my daughter's framed photos from top to bottom. I still have a picture of it because it was so chilling and I looked at him and he had his window down and he was there to get my reaction and I said, you're psychotic What are you doing? And he just drove away, smiled and drove away. And it was those things that, um, you know, this is the person I was up against in family court. And then you go into the court and you're like, you know, yeah, they look at it as, well, that's odd, you know, that he lined the stairwell, but they don't get it. And so you end up looking like the unstable one that you're complaining that you got your photos back. And you know, there's a million different examples of that. In my family court case, one of my biggest, the biggest battle, I would say, probably 80% of my family court battle was my concern about his older brother who also presented very well, captain of his football team, ASB president at their local Catholic high school, dad was principal, but I had serious concerns about this person being around my kids. And during our marriage, he and I were both in agreement that his brother would never be around our daughters. He would frequent Thailand. He brought back a Thai bride, um, just really disturbing things, homophobic, all of these horrible things about him. And when we separated, the first thing he did was take my daughters around his brother because he knew that was the number one way to hurt me. And it was about power and control and instilling fear in me. And so my, the biggest part of my battle was begging the court to keep my kids away from this person. And initially, they were kind of on board. But over the years, um, over a six-year period of time, they would allow my kids to be around this person more and more. It started with four holidays a year that they would allow them to be around them. And then by the end, my ex-husband was actually living with his brothers. So I was forced to drive my little girls to his house. And I was so concerned about his brother that even when it would be 100 degrees outside, I would put my little girls in full pants I just, you know, constantly having talks with them about good touch, bad touch. And, you know, um, they knew how dangerous his brother or that I had concerns about his brother. So I would talk to them, you know, stay away from Jason and whatnot. Well, um, two years after I was successful in protecting my kids um, in family court, his brother was arrested for molesting a little girl, um, four years old caught in the act. Turns out that not only were my, you know, it's the way that no one ever wants to be validated. Not only were my uh, concerns valid about him, but he's considered to be the biggest child molester predator in the history of our county, San Luis Obispo, He had over three terabytes of child sexual abuse images and videos that he took himself. And his youngest victim was 10 months old. So not only um, did I go through a 10-year battle in the family court system, but then that turned into a, you know, these people play out the, the court system, whatever system it is. And so... We went from family court to a five-year criminal court case that he, it was a game to him. It was like watching Ted Bundy of the predator world, of the child sexual abuse world. Um, He went in pro se. He he played a game with the court system and terrorized me. I had PIs on my street. Um, It was... I, I mean when I first found out he had been molested. I'm remarried. My husband Glenn had called me and he said, What's your brother-in-law's middle name? And I said, Robert, why? And he said, It's in the news. He was just arrested and 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 went on to tell me why. And I buckled. You know, I had to find a bench and sit down. I don't remember driving home. And then for probably about three or four months after um, helping detectives to identify victims, very small children, um, I ended up fetal position on my couch, medicated and not functioning. There's a part of my life that I really don't even remember because I... Um, was in survival mode, just trying to live. And so um, last year, he was convicted and sentenced to 280 years in prison. And um, his appeals were just denied. So he will spend... Yeah, it's, um, it's been a journey. And
0: I mean, I'm sorry. I'm still yeah. stuck on the three terabytes of images that he took himself that's
1: i didn't know that evil existed at this level yeah yeah he had cameras on his shoes which i didn't know was even a thing um predators can buy these on the internet so he would stand behind women in coffee shops who were wearing skirts and get upskirt photos of them at public events at coffee shops his wife um was a seamstress so he had hidden cameras in her um, room where she did fittings for women bridal showers things like that Um, hidden cameras in bathrooms for children he had um, his entire computer was um, meticulously filed with each child's name Um, some of them were just um, horrific descriptors of what was in these but there was so much data that our local district attorney had to buy a new uh, computer system to be able to take in the amount three terabytes from the department of justice that's how massive these files were when the da's office has to purchase a new computer system Um, so, you know, it's, um, well, I'm just sorry, you know, I go back often. Yeah. No, I I think, you know, had they listened to me from day one, I think of how different things could have been, um, not for all these other children, but from my family. Um, and that's where, the specifically with the family court we're dealing with a system that the judges aren't even educated on the 101 of domestic violence most states don't have any training requirements for judges and it's it's tragic it's a crisis
0: and everybody would have you believe how super liberal california is and how they're so empathetic they don't know first of all i'm, I'm this is just <laughs> this is just mind-bogglingly uh, sad, but And you you talked about it in your one of your videos or, or um, interviews, you know, just about the, the 50-50 system in California and how we're all under the impression that, oh, the guy, if the guy is the one who commits all this, they're going to be responsible and they're not. You know, I have friends that I know that are married to mar- narcissists that are trying to pay off this narcissist to leave and they're like, no, I'm going to hold you accountable. And because they were the breadwinner, the, the, the wife was the breadwinner. And then this guy's around going out and having an affairs and things of that nature. The, the way the system is, is it, it really is ass backwards. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Tina Swithin. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes.
2: On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell.
0: And I'm Collier Landry.
2: And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast.
0: We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.